0: Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. In today's episode, I'm joined by Bill Bonner to talk win-win deals, violence at the voting booth, and how fake facts and the new media are pushing America's once stable center to the extreme fringes.
1: You're a human being, and you react to whatever you read, you react to what you hear, you react to what your friends are saying, and pretty soon you're caught up in it.
0: Greetings, g'days, salutations, and saludos from Buenos Aires, dear listener. We're in week 32 of the two-week quarantine uh, down here in Argentina. Whether you're listening to these words in north, south, East or West, I hope you and your family are happy and free and making the most of this strangest of strange years. It is, after all, in times of adversity, when our resolve is properly tested, that we have the opportunity to most improve ourselves, to grow, to reflect and to learn. It was Jean-Paul Sartre, that wacky French existentialist, who once said, Never were we freer than under German occupation. Well, I don't quite know if I'd go that far, but I do know that a great many people who are enduring the lockdowns and quarantines and mandates and curfews and the shameless mission creep of the surveillance state are nevertheless making the most of this moment to rethink their own freedom and independence. What does that mean for you exactly? Well, perhaps it means re-examining your workplace as millions of people around the world have been forced to do over the past few months. Uh, perhaps it means rebalancing your investment portfolio, taking some of these sky-high profits and using them to build some defensive positions. Or if you're a parent, as I am, it might mean taking another look at homeschooling or alternative education options for your children, a subject that is as large as it is fascinating and one that I hope we're going to get into as this conversation continues to develop in the months ahead. Then again, maybe you've taken this opportunity to learn a new instrument. I know Bill's been tinkering around on the piano up in Salta. Or perhaps you're getting around to all those books you promised yourself you'd one day read. Finally, maybe it means you've started listening to podcasts. And maybe this is that podcast. In which case, I thank you and welcome you aboard. I hope we can bring some valuable ideas and insights your way over the coming months. To that very end, I spoke this week with the Bonner Private Research Group's founder, and the man whose name is on the door, Mr. Bill Bonner. As many of you know, especially if you've been keeping up with Bill's daily newsletter correspondence, he and his wife, Elizabeth, are actually hunkered down up in the family hole in Salta, a far-flung province in the northern reaches of Argentina, bordering Bolivia and Chile. They arrived there by dumb luck, as Bill calls it, landing shortly before the coronavirus spread to Argentina earlier this year, And due to the subsequent travel restrictions, they have remained there in their mountainous gulch ever since. Happily enough for the Bonners, they just happen to love it up there. And for anyone who has visited the province of Salta, it's not difficult to see why. Truly breathtaking uh, part of the world. However, it is extremely remote. And as such, the connection that we had on the call was not exactly crystal clear. But Bill's ideas were. And I guess that's what really counts. But before we get into the conversation, I'd like to suggest that what Bill ever so modestly calls dumb luck isn't actually quite so purely uh, serendipitous. I'm sure you've noticed, too, how prepared people always seem to be, quote unquote, fortunate when things go awry, as they are often want to do. They say that fortune favours the bold, but it also favours, on balance, those who make contingency plans, saving through the fat years, in other words, in order to survive through the lean ones. Now, in this conversation, we actually take a look at the importance of having somewhere you can retreat to during a time of crisis, whether that's a health crisis, some kind of uh, political upheaval, civil unrest, financial collapse, etc. And that's particularly relevant right now, as you might have noticed. Americans are about to head to the polls in a general election that, as Bill observes, may well result in some very serious disruption, whichever way the results go. One professor even published a study recently which found that an incredible 30% of voters on both the Republican and Democrat side said that they would be prepared to use violence if the election doesn't pan out the way they hope. Along with our friends and Bonner Private Research colleagues, Dan Denning and Tom Dyson, Bill is preparing for some tumultuous times ahead and encouraging you to do likewise. All that and more in my conversation with Bill Bonner, up next. So how's everything, how's everything doing up there?
1: Well, it's getting worse and worse, actually, the, uh, well, you know, Argentina is Argentina, and, and we are in a particularly bad little departamento mm. where the uh, the mayor has decided that he wants to protect us from the outside world. So, so nobody can come in or go out unless they pass take that test, and then if they if they go to the city and come back, they have to quarantine for
0: 14 days. So, so it's pretty darn slow around here. Wow, even slow by Salta standards. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, even slow by Salta. There no traffic on the road, by the way, partly because they have police blockades everywhere.
0: Oh, goodness. So
1: uh, It's kind of crazy.
0: So I guess that means a little bit more time um, tinkering on the ebony and ivory. You were, you were mastering a couple of tango ditties last time we spoke, I think.
1: Yes, and I, I did learn those tango tunes, and I was very happy about that. Unfortunately, what went wrong was that it's so dry up here that the, the piano went out of tune. Oh, <laughs> I can't get the tuner. I can't get the tuner up here because he can he, he doesn't have permission to come. So, uh, so I'm saying I'm saying a very out of tune tango song.
0: Yes, it's the it's the piano tuning uh, Bill, It's got not, it's all the tool, not the player, right? <laughs> Nothing to do with the player. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, hey, we could since I've uh, it took us a bit of time to to get online here. Maybe we could just just dive right into the conversation if that's all right. Uh, if that's all right with you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think we'd probably be remiss uh, if we didn't address the, you know the big looming upcoming uh, election. It seems to be even from down here at the very end of the world that seems to be the only thing that dominates uh, the bandwidth, the news. You know, the, the mainstream news bandwidth. Um, And at this time in every election cycle, I feel like we hear, uh, you know, these big hyperbolic statements like the fate of the nation hangs in the balance and democracy itself is on the line. And, you know, this boy cried wolf type um, type narrative. But uh, I'm wondering if you think that's just the media doing what the media does and just ramping up interest before the big, uh, you know, bread and circuses, or if, if this feels in some way... Different or peculiar to you, having you know been through a few elections uh, in in your time.
1: Well, I, what I, I actually think is it's a the first time we've had a real election without issues. <laughs> <It's> an election <laughs> over, over personalities. I mean, both both parties are kind of committed to more or less the same disastrous course of action and one probably more enthusiastic about it than the other. But uh, what I really think is going on is we're gauging the level of Trump fatigue. Mm. I mean, there are people who just love Trump, and they don't care what he does, and they don't seem to pay any attention to what he does. and They believe that he has made America great again, but there's no evidence of it that I can find, (laughs) and no statistics to show that that's the case. But... But there are the Trump fans, and then there are the Trump haters—the people who have hated him all along—and they hate him largely for aesthetic reasons. You know, they don't like the way he talks, they don't like his crude manner, mm-hmm. they don't like the bumblingness of him, the, the apparent stupidity and ignorance offend them. <laughs> so they're that whole crowd that they just hate the guy. Yeah. And then there are the people in the middle who don't really know one way or the other, but. And my guess is they're just getting a little bit tired of hearing Donald Trump on the news because Trump has dominated the American news for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Dominated it. He, he is the number one story uh, of, of the last four years. And I think I think the election is about whether people are tired of that or not. And yeah. uh, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Uh, looks to me like that his appeal is fading, but... You know, he's a surprising guy and he might surprise us once more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does seem to be, you mentioned that he was, you know, the biggest news story. And and of course, we had that phenomenon, I think it was called Trump derangement syndrome, where, I mean, you would have spoken to people, as I have over this past uh, three and a half years or so, where they can barely get through the first sentence of an otherwise cordial conversation without Trump entering, you know, the subject of Trump entering the fray and some way or another, but you, you think that Trump derangement syndrome is maybe giving away to Trump fatigue syndrome.
1: Well, that's, that's a hypothesis. We'll, <laughs> we'll find out when the results are in. My guess is that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the Trump derangement syndrome is still very much with us. There are people and the, the, and the Trump uh, fans, they use this all the time because they invented this theme. Because in what it does, if you say these people hate Trump. They just hate Trump. Well, if you say that, that sort of pulls the rug out from any argument that they might make, like, mm. by the way, he's for the country, or he's doing <laughs> something else. Because none of that matters to them. It's all about the man. Right. Do you like him or do you not like him? And if you don't like him, then you hate him. And if you hate him, then nothing you say about him will have any influence whatsoever, because it's... It's born out of hatred rather than any kind of rational thought. So, anyway, that's been the nature of the discussion for a long time. Still is, and I think in on, on November the third, we'll find out how that plays out in the middle. We know how it plays out in both ends, but we don't know exactly how the middle of the road not not committed, not particularly hating Trump but not particularly liking him either. We'll
0: see how that plays out with him. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, rhetorical tool. Where if you if you say that somebody is deranged, then you kind of give yourself a pass on having to deal with any of their points. It's it's almost a little similar um, from the other side when you call somebody uh, I don't know a, a, a racist or a bigot or something. It's you almost excuse yourself from having to deal with them on a logical level and you just throw the ad hominem in and then yeah well
1: it is very much very much the same thing very very pernicious it eliminates all sort of and it it, it wipes out the middle you know you can't Mm. have a calm normal conversation with somebody because if you say what you really think for most of us you will be called a racist for sure because things like in the black lives matter and you know we're i think most americans Agree, of course black lives matter. And they'll say, well, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. But if you say all lives matter, that marks you as a racist.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It
1: kind of stops stops the conversation right there because if you're white and you say all lives matter, I said, no, you're a racist. Black lives matter. Well, it suggests that your life doesn't matter at all. So Mm -hmm. it kind of the conversation kind of stops there. And we've seen that in in but certainly in racism, and we saw it during the uh, confirmation of Justice uh, Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, hmm. where if you didn't believe this woman who claimed she'd been terribly uh, molested, and you, and you asked for any proof of it. <laughs> You, know, you were you were a sexist because, no. uh, you know, you're supposed to believe the a victim. But, of course, what I was wondering, I never could, never could figure out how she was the victim. How did we know she was the victim? Happened, this particular thing happened 30 years ago, and mm-hmm. she couldn't remember exactly how it happened, how she got mm-hmm. to the party or how she got home or anything like that.
0: It was she there. remembered
1: very clearly the, the, the man who... Uh, who is, it was it was up for a Supreme Court uh, uh, position, he was the one that had done it to her th- 30 years ago. Right. Anyway, it was all <laughs> funny. But it was the same sort of thing where the people took sides and they, you know, there was no room in the middle to have a calm conversation.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, again, to the, I mean, these aren't new tools, these rhetorical tools. And, and the one that you mentioned uh, before, in particular with Black Lives Matter, that that really is a pernicious labeling of a movement because it, it employs what we call semantic overload where, you know, you, you say a very simple statement with which no sane person would disagree. You know, the sky is blue, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, wh- whatever it happens to be, w- women are beautiful. And then <laughs> if, you, if anybody goes against that very obvious statement, uh, you assume, you know, you import so much additional uh, meaning into that statement so the black lives matter for example it's not only about the very obvious fact that most people as you know recognize that black lives and indeed all lives matter but if you go against that if your point is on something like hmm um i don't uh, agree with you know the com- i don't agree with uh, property is in act- private property is an act of violence or i don't agree that two plus two equals five or i don't agree that uh, you know yeah. Uh, neo-Marxist ideology ought to uh, be taught at government expense, then they go back to just accusing you of well, So you're saying black lives don't matter. That's a very pernicious rhetorical tool.
1: Yeah, well, it it came out uh, most recently in the case of another Supreme Court confirmation, which is Justice Barrett, Mm. who uh, was asked what she thought of global warming. And she said that her mind was not made up on the on the subject; that it had never occurred to her as a case, so she hadn't been forced to study it or come to a conclusion about it. And naturally, there uh, was a whole big group of people who condemned her immediately yeah. <laughs> for being a climate change denier. How yeah. could she not? How could she not know? <laughs> anyway, it was it was pretty funny. And then, come to think of it, another thing like that happened very recently about, uh, not climate change, but this time about COVID, Mm
0: -hmm. in which
1: uh, Dr. John Atlas, who is the presidential advisor and has a PhD in some sort of uh, science, (laughs) and (laughs) he said, uh, he uh, he was asked about masks, and he said, uh, do masks work? He said, well, no. You know, and he went on to clarify what he meant by that, but immediately mm-hmm. he was branded as, uh, you know, as a, somebody who just dropped from the trees. And <laughs> how could he not, not say that masks work? Well, of course they work. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, right. so you get the, and, and by the way, on that comment that he made trying to explain what he meant, Twitter suppressed it, you know, as they do, because it was misinformation. It was just right. the guy's opinion you know, about how the password but anyway that's what we're getting to now so you can't have an opinion that's
0: just the right one right it's it's particularly i mean the irony runs pretty thick that that skepticism used to be at the very heart of science i mean skepticism is a is one of the founding ideas uh behind you know testing a hypothesis remaining skeptical until evidence comes in now if you if you voice any skepticism. Uh, as you said, you're you're branded as a denier, which in itself has a has a, a very uh, it's a very underhanded kind of um, pejorative. But anyway, we might not get into that. But yeah, so
1: you know, it, it, now, yeah, now you have to be a believer,
0: right? You right, have
1: to believe a whole <laughs> set of things which are are often just kind of idiotic or unproven or mm-hmm. just wishful thinking many times. And uh, but that, that's what. Uh, media
0: seems to call for and so yeah on that point of media you mentioned twitter suppressing um you know particular stories that, that run against the grain of their uh of their position let's say and and most recently in the last week we saw uh twitter and i think facebook as well were uh at least accused of suppressing some of the stories that came out about hunter biden uh, joe biden's son and Twitter was suspending people's accounts that were sharing the, the New York Post story on that kind of stuff. I, I wonder what your opinion of is uh, of the media and the new media, uh, you know, the new mainstream medias, which are what people repost on Twitter and Facebook, how much you think that they are driving a wedge between, you know, what we kind of know as the quote unquote coastal elites and the quote unquote People in flyover country. Yeah,
1: I don't have a very original opinion about that, but I remember when I was growing up back in the 1950s and 60s, everybody had the same news. We all had Walter <laughs> Con- Cronkite and NBC Nightly News, and we all, and, and you know, good or bad, it, it, it uh, kept people together a bit because they all started with the same basic facts. And today, people have very, very different facts. Because the, you can get any fact you want on the internet, and as as you move out on the spectrum of looniness, you know there are more and more loony people out there with more and more loony conspiracy, various kind of crackpot ideas on any subject. So I think right now the, the news media has become very much more uh, niche oriented, oriented to specific niches which have. Uh, and it serves as a consumer product. So what do people want? They want they want ideas and information that flatters them, flatters their ideas, confirms their notions, whatever they are. And now that the media, the new media can be niched out, uh, you can get any dopey thing you want. And uh, that's good in a way because we, that encourages skepticism to some level, and the skeptic can go on there and find all kinds of things out. Well, on the other hand, it allows for a very fragmented population with people with very, very different ideas based on very, very different information sources. And not surprisingly, oh, I saw, saw something recently in the news which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, some professors have done a study, and they find that a third, a third of both Democrats and Republicans said that they would be willing to use violence if the election doesn't go their way. Mm. Now, I presume that means they'll use violence if the election doesn't go that way, and they think that the election has been stolen from them. But in today's media, it's so easy to think that the election is being stolen because there are bound to be all kinds of crackpots who believe it and earnestly believe, and there may even be a lot of evidence for it. So before, you know, that's one of the odd things, that before... In the old days, 50 years ago, an election could be stolen, as arguably it was by John Kennedy in Chicago. But still, the the the, the public was okay with that. It was a, it was stolen <laughs> fair
0: stolen and fair and square. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it did not drive a wedge between the, the uh, between people, and there was no hint of anyone being willing to use violence to overturn the results of an election. But now, with this, with this new media, new ideas, and very and, and appealing to people, we're getting pushed out from the middle by by the fact that the middle is actually failing, I think that's the big story: the middle, the middle ground, the ideas that shared by both Democrats and and uh, Republicans in Congress, for example, and by mainstream economists and by most of the right-thinking world are false, and they are detrimental to people's well-being, and and people feel it even though they don't understand it. And so they go to the extremes because they think something is deeply unfair. And And they go looking for extreme views on the Internet, and they find them. And that pushes this kind of divergence of opinion and this willingness to confront in a violent way, if necessary, ideas that they find abhorrent to them.
0: So what? Uh, where does that leave us with uh, the defending democracy? What I mean, what is left to defend of democracy? Assuming it was a, it was a decent, uh, decent enough system, as long as everybody kind of went along with it uh, in the beginning. But if, yeah. as if as H. L. Mencken said, it, it, you know, the whole process is really just an advanced. Uh, auction on stolen goods, Uh, if democracy itself is in the balance and everybody is willing to use violence if things don't go their way, um, maybe we're better off without it. What do you think?
1: Well, I don't know. I I think (laughs) democracy, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) I, I think to me, it's not democracy that's been successful. Hmm. It's because democracy is, is largely a fraud in a lot of ways. You know, people think that they get it, that people in line for, to vote and they think their vote's going to make any difference. Well, all the evidence is it won't make any difference at all. Hmm. First, it won't change the election results, and even if it did change the election results, it wouldn't change what happens after the election comes because politicians are driven by forces that, you know, in any government, it doesn't matter what you call it, always there's a small elite that take over and actually run it. And those people do it for their own benefit. It doesn't matter how you vote, and not a, at least not fundamentally. At the margin, sometimes it does. But, uh, but I think democracy has been a success because of that. I think it's what really has been a success is consensual democracy, which is the way in which people informally come together and agree that they're not going to do anything too horrible to one another. Hmm. And uh, when they do that, it's not exactly because they're voting. It's because they agree with one another to respect each other. And so they don't, they don't force on programs on one another that people don't like. And, I, and this is not something that's written in the Constitution. This is not something the political parties even mentioned. And it's disappeared. Of the part of consensual democracy that worked is the part, the consensual part, and my guess is that that's the part that's disappearing. People are now still voting, and the laws are being passed, and all sorts of things are happening, but they're no longer consensual, which means to say that any given thing is likely to have half of the population dead set against it. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of situation, when when the consensus disappears, which is what's happening now, you're you're
0: going to run into trouble, which is I think what's going to happen. Yeah, so I, I, that gets us, uh, I think, probably to the the very title of your of your most recent book. I, I think what you're describing, if I'm not mistaken, is is the distinction between win-win arrangements. You know, the kind of democracy where people vote with the dollars in their wallet or their pounds or yen or whatever, or they vote with their feet um, in you know supporting one business or uh, in favor of another as opposed to the kind of um, deals, the win-lose deals where the insiders win at the expense of the general public that is more or less the case.
1: Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I bet, I tried to spell it out as best I could in that book. And I thought I did a pretty decent job because I thought I was able to put it in. in it's not, a, not a new idea at all, by the way, it's as old as the Hills. I said, the, the the win, the win-win, Heel was described by, by Jesus himself.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to jump in here and let our listeners know that we had a little bit of technical difficulty right around this part of the conversation where Bill's uh, connection actually dropped out from up there in Salta. So you'll notice that when we cut back in in just a few seconds, we've actually jumped around from the time of Jesus Christ all the way back to uh, right around the agricultural revolution, which is what Bill's talking about uh, here with regards to the pre-win-win deal era. But I'm sure you'll be able to pick it up and follow along. And thankfully, the connection from here on out is a lot clearer, so we've got that going for us. Okay, back to the conversation.
1: It was a, it was a zero-sum uh, economy back I mean, you know, there were no entrepreneurs, there were no business people, there was no capitalism. And there was no profit. So if you wanted to get ahead, the only way to get ahead was to kill somebody and take his stuff, which he didn't have much of, take mm-hmm. his land, take his women, whatever he had that you could <laughs> take. That was really the only way. And when you look at the bones, bone record is, is really rather uh, compelling. And it shows that, that in prehistory, people were killed very often. The murder rates were very high remember that guy they found in the, uh, in the uh, frozen in Switzerland, they called Otzi, and he had been there for 5,000 years or so. And when they examined him, they found that he too had an arrow in his chest. Hmm. He had been killed, murdered. So it's very common. And then re- you, read the, you read the Old Testament, and you are aghast at how violent they were back then. And this was the God telling the the uh, you know the israelites to go out and kill everybody
0: <laughs> yeah this is, but, this, uh, is anyways, this
1: is all we, oh, we don't really know what happened but just from logic when you can't get ahead any other way you have to expect that people are going to going to uh be barbaric, and they are going to going to kill each other and that's what what seemed to happen and then along came the new world, the new world was one where you could make a profit. You could make a profit by tilling land in your time and energy in land. You could make it more productive. This is the agricultural revolution. And that required a whole change of the way people operated because you wouldn't do it if somebody would come and steal it from you. So you had to have property rights. And then when you made, made a, a surplus, you raised more wheat than you could eat. You could sell it. You needed money for that. And you needed records. So you needed writing. And that's when all of this happened, you know, about four or 5,000 years ago, maybe 10,000 in some places. But that was the big revolution that produced capitalism, that produced Jesus Christ, by the way, who came forward on the Sermon on the Mount and said, do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. And that is the fundamental rule of win-win deals, of capitalism. And of modern consensual democracy, and when the consensual part goes, all you've got is a lot of people voting trying to take something from each other, which is the way I'm afraid we are headed.
0: Mm, so this is the this is the process by which we uh, we transition, I guess, from that Hobbesian idea of uh, you know nature, tooth and fang. What is it? The the life um, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, into something a little bit more civilized. Um, uh, but we 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 might potentially at least uh, if those on the extreme of maybe the right and the left in uh, in the U.S. in their own little media uh, echo chambers that are confirming and reconfirming their uh, increasingly extreme opinions, uh, we might be on the verge of of something nasty, brutish, and short <laughs> in in short order.
1: Well, I, I I don't know. I don't know how far it will go, but but we see how, how far it does go just by reading the, the news from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not the only ones. And not long ago, it was Zimbabwe. Before that, it was Yugoslavia and, and Bolivia and Argentina here in the 1980s with an inflation rate of 2,000%. So when things get rough, they get really rough. Mm-hmm. And that's not unnatural. That's the way humans are. They, they have the capacity to cooperate, have consensual democracy, but it's not always the case. They also have a lot of people in a society who find they prefer taking things away from people. They prefer barbarism. They don't understand it anyway. So not, sometimes you just get in a trap, like a debt trap, and, mm-hmm. which is we're, what we're headed to now. And the only way to get out of it, or at least the way that appears to be the only way to get out of it, is just to print money. And that upsets everybody. It upsets the whole nature of the society. People feel it's unjust. It is unjust. Some people get a lot of money and people get no money. And then people who used to be very successful have to pick through trash barrels to get enough to eat. And that upsets everybody. And then they look around for some savior. They look around for a messiah and unfortunately tend to find people who are totally, totally corrupt and
0: like... uh,
1: like
0: Adolf
1: Hitler and Mussolini and people like that, big,
0: strong leaders. Do you have any kind of sense of, uh, we were writing earlier on, I think it was late last week actually, about how much ruin is in a nation and our colleague uh, Dan Denning had brought up that uh, the the simple observation that those nations who had more or less gone along with a kind of win-win program. Uh, necessarily, have a lot further to fall and a lot sharper uh, in their descent than those that had just kind of bumbled along and not unleashed uh, the you know all the pent up value in a largely win win or capitalist system. Do you have any kind of sense of how long uh, it takes you know from from top to bottom? I mean, you you mentioned Venezuela for example. Then it was, it was I'd read just earlier uh, today that it was only ninety two or ninety three that it ranked as one of the richest nations in the hemisphere and then of course you know within sort of a quarter of a century which is you know that's really just a blink of an eye they'd gone to uh, you know the government um, massacring unarmed civilians which is you know that's a that's a pretty you know, a pretty precarious uh, uh, position in such a short time to find oneself in do you have any idea uh, how long the us you know how much ruin that good nation has in her
1: well Uh, The U.S. is a very rich place, and it's a very big place, and it's a very diverse place. There are a lot of smart people in it and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So I would not expect to see a total collapse quickly. Although, that said, I'm astonished at the rate in which the uh, political controlling class has given up completely on the ideas that it needs in order to save itself. You know, the conservatives who used to be the guardians of the, of the money, they've totally disappeared. And uh, the liberals, the Democrats have totally gone over to this crazy MMT, modern monetary theory, which tells them they can spend as much money as they want. They can print as much money as they want and they believe they can do this. They say they can do it as long as, as, long as the dollar holds up. Well, yes. I mean, they are, I think, literally true. But what <laughs> happens is when the, <laughs> when the dollar doesn't hold up, it's too late to do anything about it. Mm. Because then you're in that situation, uh, which is classic, where you don't have any choice but to go all the way to destroying yourself. And that's what happens almost everywhere I can think of. And, and you know, our, our mutual friend, Doug Casey, went over to talk to the finance minister of Zimbabwe. And this is a guy who had started a, a printing program, money. Go now, right. He printed, he printed up so money, so much money that it cost something like five trillion Zimbabwe dollars to buy a cigarette. It was just a huge factor. And to this day, which is now about fifteen years later, people in Zimbabwe don't have anything to eat, even though it was the richest agricultural com- country in Africa at one point. Well, anyway, so Doug went over there and talked to the guy and he said, hey, well, you know, well, what happened? Why do you do that? It's, it seems so crazy. And he said, well, you know, I didn't have a choice. He said the country had been spending more than it brought in for years and years and years and, that, and then was on the verge of a crisis. You know, there were people who wanted to take over, revolutionaries. There were people who were losing jobs. There were people who didn't have any money to buy bread. So he said, the only thing I could do was to print more money because that's what everybody wanted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so he did, (laughs) of course. But it's the same everywhere. If you read the history of the the Weimar Republic, this is a classic inflation, hyperinflation story. But the people running that were very smart, well-meaning, well-educated people. They weren't yahoos. They knew what they were doing. And when you at, and you can you can read today what the fellow running the Bank of Germany said. He said he said we knew that we were going to touch off some very serious inflation, but at the time we had Marxist revolutionaries in the street. We had we had uh, union uh, strikes happening all the time. We had people attacking the strikers. We were were on the brink of a civil war, and we had no other choice but then to print money to try to get through it.
0: Sounds familiar.
1: (laughs) But but it was at a huge, huge cost. It destroyed the values of the economy, the the faith that people had, in the fairness of the system, and it set the stage for the the Nazi takeover in the 1930s.
0: So... uh I think you you probably get this uh as well you and i for for listeners who don't know you you're up in Salta, or I'm down here in Argentina's capital. We're both outside of our countries of birth and around this this time around election time um I often get the you know the well you're you're over in argentina um you know you're not here in Australia or you'll get you know you well you're not up here in in America bill you're down there in Argentina and um you know, you're, you're out of touch because you're so far away. But uh, do, do you think that there's a, a quite an obvious advantage of having an outsider's perspective, especially um, on, our, on our respective home countries?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, you, if you're in the U.S., even if you're not in the U.S., you quickly get caught up in the news cycle yourself. Mm. You know, you're not, you're not independent of the news. You're a human being, and you react to whatever you read, you react to what you hear, you react to what your friends are saying, and pretty soon you're caught up in it. And I'm astonished from here, but I probably would be astonished there too, but the way in which this, uh, you know, the coronavirus uh, uh, reaction Mm -hmm. has been, in which people, to me, apparently irrationally worried about it, 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 it's not much of a danger to anybody who's under the age of 70, but people are extremely panicky and, you know, they want, they want to, they're willing to shut down society and force people to do things that they don't want to do. Anyway, that's, a, that's a bit of a diversion, but you can see how easily you get caught up in whatever the extraordinary popular delusion of the time is. And by being away, at least you have some protection. You have some distance between you and those ideas. So I I believe that being away is actually better because you're able to see things as an outsider, looking in from the outside outside and seeing them more clearly. But in addition, you, uh, Joel, you and I have a great, great advantage in being here in Argentina. Argentina has done every stupid thing that a country (laughs) can do with its finances. It's made every mistake that I know of. And it suffered every, every result that I can think of. You know, they had hyperinflation, depression. They have lost wealth. They were once one of the richest countries in the world and now are way down on the list. So, and, and you watch how people work around here. Everything is, nothing is on the level. Nothing is straight. Everybody's mm-hmm. got two or three sets of books. You know, they've got <laughs> dollar exchanges at one level and dollar exchanges at a black market level. They've got books that talk that are completely under the table. <laughs> you know, and it's the normal way of doing things. People exchange invoices. Uh, you know, I've seen it done where a guy gives one person an invoice for services rendered, which were never rendered. The <laughs> other guy gives, gives, takes a receipt for having paid inference for money that was never given to him. And yeah. that happens a lot. It happens because some people need to show income. Other people need to show laws and make them up. (laughs) And the whole country has become very, very corrupt. (laughs) In an amusing way, actually, and a very educational way. So I feel like by studying what's going on here and how people react, right now the inflation rate here is said to be around 50%, but could be headed to 1,000% for all anybody knows. And uh, you see how people react. How do they, what do they do? What do they do with their money? How do they protect themselves? It's fascinating to me and I think useful to to our U.S.-bound readers.
0: Right. And, I, another mutual friend of ours down here who uh, who resides in Buenos Aires was telling me just a couple of weeks ago, he went through the actual tax laws, which must have been a, a tedious and odious task, uh, but he went through the, the, the tax laws here and discovered that if all of the laws were applied as they're written on the books then the average business owner here would have to pay something like 120 or 130% of their net revenue in taxes, which is obviously, obviously you can't make that up in volume. There's one thing you can count on
1: is that the Argentine businessman is not paying the taxes that are required of him by the law.
0: Yes. It's a a national sport.
1: (laughs) Yeah, It's a national sport. And I had a lawyer here because of something I wanted to do and, And then I found that what I wanted to do would be, I'd be prohibited from doing it because I was not an Argentine. And I asked him about it and he said, Oh, Bill, don't you you understand? This is Argentina. Of course you can do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Bill, that brings me to a a question I've been been wanting to ask you for a long time. And I think uh, a lot of our readers and listeners over the years probably have this similar are scratching their head in a similar way and that's that you speak now about you know having an idea to start up a new business in argentina and and it seems you know even after having been writing about these ideas for you know 40 plus years and starting dozens of business or businesses around the world it's 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 quite clear that you could you know if you were inclined you could you know just sit back and uh, chill out on a caribbean island and you know Jet around in a in a fancy plane and 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 whatnot. But what is it that drives you to keep opening businesses? What do you do? You think the entrepreneurial spirit is something that's just kind of genetically hardwired? Um, you know, what is it that gets you up and gets you taking new risks all the time, deploying capital, uh, employing people, building, creating value, all that kind of stuff?
1: Well, I I don't know why I do it particularly. <laughs> I just find more interesting than not doing it because, you know, people, when you, you know, I turned 72 years old just a few weeks ago and I did, somebody did ask, well, isn't it time for you to retire? (laughs) I think he was thinking, boy, you should retire. (laughs) but I don't even know what that would mean. I mean, what would I do if I were retired? Mm. I, I can't quite picture it. I, I, I don't know. I, so I just keep doing what I've been doing and I've always enjoyed what I was doing. So there's no reason to stop doing what I'm doing. I, I, uh, I work, I work hard, which is to say I started seven and ended seven, mm-hmm. uh, which is more than maybe the typical person, but I don't, I work in a way that I like. I'm always trying to figure things out or I'm writing or I'm talking to somebody about a business opportunity or something or other. So I, I just enjoy it and I'm just doing what what I enjoy, and uh, actually, they don't pay me for it anymore. <laughs> Probably wise, <laughs> wisely, they don't pay me, but uh, it's uh, but it's just it's still fun to do.
0: Well, uh, I for one am very uh, grateful that that you have that drive because one of the new ventures that you've uh, started up lately, just in in the midst of uh, of the pandemic, malaise is uh, the Bonner Private Research Group, uh, about which we're we're endeavouring with uh, our our friends, uh, Dan Denning, Tom Dyson, and and Mr. Mayor, Mr. Chris Mayor will be involved, of course, there. Um, I was interested that you you wrote recently all the trends that you have been observing, all the dots that you've been connecting, um, you know, be they political, economic, social, cultural, etc., over the past 40 years, you see those accelerating right now. uh, And I wonder how you you see the, this private research group fitting into that, how we could be of, of value to uh, people out there who, you know, they listen to the media, they're, they're you know, subject to that kind of boiling frog uh, analogy and, you know, how we can, uh, you know, help kind of lay the picture out for them and, and try and explain what it is we think is going on in the world.
1: Well, I think the, the difference between what we're doing and the typical financial service is doing is we're much, much more, I'd say, big picture oriented, long term oriented, uh, maybe philosophy oriented. We, we are trying to figure out what's going on and we want to figure it out in a historical way. We are not concerned making profits tomorrow. We're not concerned with Trading techniques. We're not concerned about what's the next tech breakdown, break, <laughs> breakdown, <laughs>
0: breakthrough. <laughs> Interesting Freudian slip there, yeah.
1: <laughs> So, So, so it, it, uh, it leaves us free to, to think more deeply about uh, what, what's really going on and what's really important. And part of the conclusion we came to about a year ago, or maybe a little bit more, was that things were going to get rough. And that people should uh, take some of their life and make sure they have a bolt hole somewhere. And that's been one of Dan's favorite subjects because when things get rough, there's not much you can do. You know, it's not a, unless you're some really fancy uh, speculator, you're, you're, your, your goal will be not to lose money and not to lose your bearings. You know, you your crowds go mad from time to time and you don't want to be in that crowd. So, Our advice, and this is just one part of our advice, is that things are going to get rough for a lot of reasons that we write about every day. And when they do get rough, there's not much you can do except protect yourself, and you can protect your money. And we thought a lot about how to do that. We mostly come to the conclusion that right now you should own gold, at least a heavy proportion of them, and make sure you're not too dependent on the dollar, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you need to protect your life, and you need to protect your freedom to think. And you're, you need to protect your independence. And for that, we think you need a place where you feel comfortable, where, you know, the mobs aren't going to run down the street and where the government's not going to come after you and so on and so on. And there are a lot of these nice towns that Dan has been described. And Tom too, Tom now is in a tiny little town in Idaho where he's spending the winter. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. so so we're we're trying to think a little bit broader and more deeply, and we're trying to we appeal to people like ourselves who have want to who want to do something other than just try to make a quick buck, and that involves usually saving and protecting family money over a long period of time.
0: Mm. So we'll be looking uh, in coming issues, coming episodes, coming uh, writings and research reports at uh, not only financial independence and how people can play defense, largely in what we think is probably a very uh, going to be a very unpleasant market uh, for many reasons, but also um, helping people discover some political independence, as you said, and also geographic independence, which I wouldn't have thought this just a couple of years ago, but uh, is something that I think people who are living in in big cities, particularly you know Chicago and Seattle and things like that that's that um, aspect of of uh, freedom and independence is becoming you know, all, all the more critical and very quickly too, but we'll be talking about that uh, as well in our coming musings, right?
1: Okay, and uh, Dan is probably the person to talk to, or Tom, actually, both of them have done much more than I have in trying to figure that out. All
0: right, well, we'll have, uh, we'll have those guys on, on the program as well, but uh, uh, Bill, thanks again for taking the time today. I appreciate your patience with a few technical difficulties.
1: <laughs> that's, that's all right it's still, it's still amazing to me that we can have this conversation
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast you can find more conversations like this in the members only section of our website at com. if you would like to contact us please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at com. we look forward to hearing from you either way until next week